All right. Here we go. Let's get let's get rolling. We have to cover half of 1 Samuel today, so got to get down to down to business. Let's say a prayer real quick. Gracious are you, O Lord, and righteous. You are our merciful God. You preserve the simple. When you bring us low, you save us. Grant that our souls may always return to your rest. Deliver our souls from death, our eyes from tears, and our feet from stumbling. Grant that we may always walk before you in the land of the living. In your most holy name we pray. Amen. Do you have any questions? Any questions? Okay. Um, So here's what I think we should do. I'm not going to pretend that we're going to cover all four chapters at the end. So um, we'll just do what happens. We'll see what happens and uh, go go with it. I thought, I did think it would be, I know this is going to take a chunk of time, but I did think it might be helpful for us to watch this video again of 1 Samuel so you can see the scope of what's happened from beginning to end. If if you're not interested, let's say, don't do that, Pastor, and I won't do it. But I thought maybe just keep, keep the big picture in mind. So this is a video from the Bible Project. We watched it right at the beginning. We'll watch it again now. Um, and, and then so we've got the very end of the story to cover yet. All right, let's see. Mary, thank you. Are you ready? All right, I think, um, well, do you have any questions or observations right off the bat? Holly. Uh, I was just thinking about that very end where it was like the application. Yeah. Right. That's right. I think that that's that's a crucial thing. So the with the kind of the, I don't know if you felt this way. You left with at the end of that story the sense that well, I've got some work to do on myself. Right. I've got to spend some time reflecting on my character flaws and um, deal with the dark, deal with my dark side. Right. Now now, that's not to say that you shouldn't do that. Right. You should reflect on your character flaws and deal with your dark side. But how do you deal with it? This is where your point is so great, Holly, because dealing with it re- requires that you hide yourself in Christ, right? Who is a better David? Um, David ex- you know, exhibits these characteristics that are remarkable. It's his faithfulness to God, right? He trusts in God, which is a very good thing. But that's, even that is not quite adequate because David has to repent time and again, Right? Um, Jesus is uh, humble and never needs to repent. Um, so in that sense, the, the picture of David is, on the one hand, exemplary for us because it shows us what repentance looks like, but it points ahead to our substitute in whom we can repent. Okay? Um, repentance is a risky thing. Um, dealing with your dark side, being humble, turning away from sin um, can, be, can lead to despair. Because you can't solve it on your own. You can't, you can't actually eradicate it on your own. Um, and so I, actually, that's... Any other comments or questions? Yeah, Aaron. It reminds me of in the Jesus storybook Bible. Yeah. It's like they always tell the stories of the Old Testament. This reminds us of... And they're like, and there is another who will do better. Yes. Every time you're like... Oh, the answer is Christ. That's right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's what. That's the best thing about that about that storybook Bible. Um, that you know, and it's put exactly in those terms. It's like, and David was a great king, but but one day 
there would be a better king. And it's, it's, it's this great invitation if you're reading this to little kids. Who's that king going to be? You know, they love that. It's perfect. It's great. Leah. It's funny, I think, like, so many times over and over, you know, the Bible talks about these great figures, and, um, but they all have flaws. Yeah. You look at them and you're like, well, how can, um, how can God think this person is so great? Yeah, they did some great things, but they also did some of these terrible things. But the key thing for all of them is that, like, they're complete faith. Right. You kind of to Holly's point, Ben, you're like, the way you solve whatever flaws, whatever, you may, you're not going to solve all of your flaws, right, because you are not perfect, is complete faith and humility, and that's what God truly honors and, just, you know, like, it raises up. Right, and this is, here's, there's an important distinction, a, a correction to be made for what they said about David. It wasn't that he humbled himself, but that he was humbled by God, right? You cannot humble yourself. I mean, you can, subject, you can subject yourself to all kinds of humiliation, right? But even that experience, can, you can cultivate pride in being humiliated, right? That's, an, that's the experience of middle school, right? Cultivating pride while you're being humiliated. But to be humble, to be, to be brought low so that you rely on somebody else, that's something that happens to you, right? And so we see in the pictures of David and Saul, we see that happening, that God does this to David. David and Saul are identical in their humanity. And God chooses David to be his king, to be his man. And, and so he gives him humility, humbles him. Yeah, Aaron. So when you have the verse, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Yeah. What does that mean? I, I don't know. Sometimes I still feel like, so what do I do? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just my own wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that it, 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 oftentimes it, it really comes down to particularities, right? So to talk about humbling yourself, and St. Peter talks this way as well, right? Hum, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, uh, under the mighty hand of God. Um, and that's a really broad sort of abstract notion. But when it comes down to like particularities, specific situations, it usually does amount to something pretty clear. Like, um, are, you gonna, are you going to grumble about this or not? Are you going to resist what God is doing to you or not? Um, are you going to repent of your grumbling and your resistance, or are you going to be belligerent and carry on in thinking that things ought to be a different way? Um, it's, I think it's seldom, there's, there's a lot of processes in life, and this is one of the things that's so interesting about Saul and David. You know, we have this arc of Saul's rise and fall, and then David comes like this, and usually when we think about a rise and a fall like this. They, in fact, they described it as you know, David coming to power, right? So at the peak here, he's got power. And Saul has this rise to power and then utter, this terrible fate. Um, I don't think that that is actually where the arc lies. It's true there's this rise and fall in power, but that's just a normal human arc because we grow old and we, you know, we die eventually, right? This is, this, this is just a human arc. Um, there's a, the, David's arc is, um, is based on the character of his conscience. And I really want to spend some time talking about conscience today because um, what God is doing by um, humbling David and then saying to David, be humbled, he's forming his conscience, shaping his conscience. Okay? Um, so that by the time David commits a grievous sin right, with Bathsheba and against Uriah, his conscience has been so formed that even though he commits this grievous sin when, when Nathan comes to him, he repents, right? 
the groundwork is being laid all along for that. And so um, it's this incremental bit by bit thing. And I think that, you know, what, what is there for me to do? It depends from situation to situation. It depends from moment to moment. And it always um, requires this, as, as Luther talks about it, this return to your origins, right? Return to your baptism. So you think to yourself, I was dead and now I'm alive, right? You don't think to yourself, I got myself here and now what should I do? You think, I was dead. There's nothing, no more humble state than that, right? I was dead and now I'm alive. Um, and, and God did, did this to me. It really, it really is... In some sense, um, an attitude, a posture, um, a, it's a cultivation of a kind of a virtue, right? Um, let's think about this for a second. Any other questions? Any other comments? Okay. Think about conscience for a second. Um, I was thinking about the example I use with the high schoolers they can all resonate with is crashing your dad's car. So um, when, uh, when I was in high school, I took my folks got a brand new car and they trusted me <laughs> and I and I didn't it was you know this moment of great pride because I didn't want them to come with me where I was going I was going to a basketball tournament in a neighboring town and I was like no you don't I don't want you to come with me I'm going to drive myself and so it was the middle of winter and then the, we got there and there was a foot of snow on the ground and I crashed the car it was maybe three months old brand new car crashed it right okay so I'm with my I'm like I think 17 years old, 16 or 17 yes at least 16 years old uh, so what do you think I did? Just go ahead. Guess. What do you think I did? I crashed the car. I'm with my team. My coach is there. What do you think I did? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Well, here I'm telling you the story now. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Perfect. Okay, so here's the story. My friend uh, was driving his pickup truck, and he was in the parking lot of the restaurant that we were getting dinner at, and he was driving out of the exit of the parking lot, and his engine fell out of his truck. <laughs> it's just, there it is, lying in the middle of the parking lot. And I had already parked, and I thought to myself, they've got all their baggage in the truck, right? They've got all their gear for basketball. I'm going to go pull my car over to them and help them unload, get it shifted in my car. And I'm, and I'm, I'm, like, I'm going to be a hero, right? So I back up and, poof, hit the car right next to me. So... Um, yeah, that was the story. I was trying to be—I was trying to do something good. You know, I wasn't being reckless, right? I was trying to be—that's trying to be helpful. Yeah. Okay, so now I'm in a world of hurt. What—what what do you think I did? <laughs> what would you have done? Parents are going to kill me, right? That is a thought that enters one's mind. Yeah. How bad was the damage? It was—it was. You know, you'll get out of the car and you hope that you're going to see just like. Something you can scrape off with your finger. No, it was pretty bad. The whole bumper was torn off. And then the, person's, the other person's car, too, right? So it's not just my folks' car, but there's damage to the other person's car, too. Right? You have those moments in life where, like, you make a stupid decision, and then you just, like, you think to yourself, that was just a hair of a decision. And if I had done it something different, it would have, everything would be happy right now, but it's not. <laughs> well, let's see. You can always, if it were drivable, you could go home, get it in the garage, very quietly. Good. And... Yeah, there are lots of schemes. There's there are lots of ways to manage this kind of a situation, right? Along with that is somewhere along the line is like Yeah, yeah. So these schemes, while they you might be successful, right? You if you're clever enough, you can hide something like that. Right, and, and that's part of that. Part of that is telling the story too, right? So, um, 
it wasn't really my fault. It would have, it would have helped if I hadn't been driving the car. But, <laughs> but even in driving the car, I could, I could paint it in a way where it wasn't really my fault. But it was my fault, right? And so, and so if I hide it, I'm going to have a bad conscience, right? Because I know, and that, that bad conscience becomes worse if somebody thinks you are actually justified, if they believe the lie, right? That bad conscience becomes Oh, yeah, that's hard work. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's right. So, you know, I, at this point in my life, I had learned enough lessons to know that, that hiding it was not going to, A, not going to be possible. There were too many witnesses, for one thing, and, and it was not going to bode well for me, okay? But the conscience tell your father. Yeah, so I, somehow I have to tell my father, okay? And he, what do you think? So you minimize, you minimize what the damage is, or minimize the, and build up the conditions. That's right. Snowing. That's right. Not my fault. Yep. As much as I was helping a friend. You tell the story in that way. That's right. Yeah. There's a great ad. It used to be on TV. A high school kid comes home. <laughs> it, 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 yes. And, and it's a, mom and dad. This tiny little thing happened, but it's no big deal. It's an ad for insurance. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So you ease them into it. Yeah, that's right. You ease them into it. That's right. I actually had a little bit more help because um, I, was trying to, I was trying to buffer myself from the pain that was coming. So I asked my coach to call my dad for me. <laughs> Which... <laughs> Which is good because, think about the reaction, your dad gets a call from the coach. I, Ke- Kevin, there's something I have to tell you. So what's he thinking? Something terrible has happened, right? So, uh, you know, David, David has something he wants to tell you, okay? Right. So, so now we're, you know, we're, we're easing into it a little bit. Um, but all of this, so, you know, these stories are not uncommon, I hope. I hope that you've, you can resonate with that kind of an experience. The whole point is... Um, your conscience is a powerful force in that whole situation, right? Because the, the instinct to pretend like it didn't happen or minimize it or not be responsible for it or not to face the person who has a right to hold you in judgment for what you've done, right? All of those things are in play, right? Um, because we want to avoid being um, guilty. Now, it's even worse, of course. So, I, like, I wasn't doing anything illicit. I really, I really wasn't. And... Here I am again, still justifying myself. But I really wasn't. It wasn't like I was speeding or, t- or talking on the phone while I was driving or anything like that. I was paying attention, right? So it would have been worse, even worse, you know, if I had been, because then now I would have been even more culpable. And um, that, that bad conscience can, can mount. Now, when I talk about this with the high schoolers, um, I, I say, you, cr- you crashed your car and you, um, what are your options? You crashed your dad's car, what are your options? Overwhelmingly, the kids say, I'm going to run away. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna leave. I'm just gonna go because I don't want to. I don't want to talk to him about that. But now we press the question a little bit further. Suppose that you um, you borrowed your dad's car t- last night and you crashed it, and you need he, you need I don't know what they you need twenty bucks to go to the movies with your friends the next night. Okay, um, what are your how's that story gonna go? Okay, so you crashed the car last night. You need twenty bucks tonight to go see the a movie with your friends. Let's say you haven't talked to your dad yet. You haven't told him that he crashed. He hasn't noticed you crashed the car. What are you going to do? You're going to ask for the 20 bucks before you tell him. You're going to go with your friends tonight. Because why? Why would you do it that way? Why would you do it in that order? Because there are going to be consequences, right? You, um, 
you know that you're not going to be able to ask your dad. You're not going to feel like you should or you could or that he's just going to say no, right? Um, that is, uh, again, a function of a bad conscience, right? So if you have done something, if you've done something grievous, you've sinned against your dad or you've, you've uh, disappointed him in this way, you feel like you can't ask him for other things, right? Even things that he would otherwise want to give to you. Um, and so one of the ways you do, one of the ways you manage that is by not telling him, right? Put it off as long as you can so that you can keep the relationship, right? You keep the relationship sound as long as you can because when, because you have this sense that the axe is going to drop, fall at that point and then things are going to change, right? Um, now, uh, of course, if you never tell your dad, then you always have a bad conscience, right? If you tell your dad, there's a chance he won't forgive you. It's a chance that he'll say, that's it, never again. I'm, not, I'm, I'm always going to say no from now on, right? Um, there's a chance for that, that that's going to happen. There's also a chance, of course, that he forgives you, right? And you're gonna, you'll suffer consequences. There'll be you know, some penalty. You have to pay for the damage. You have to um, write an essay, something. You have to, you have to do something. Um, but the relationship has been restored, right? So although you are paying a penalty, your conscience has been set free by your dad's forgiveness. And what does that do? That means that although you're going to be cautious, you're free to ask him for other things, right? You wouldn't be free otherwise. You can't ask him for anything if you have a bad conscience um, because it, puts your, it destroys your relationship. You tracking with me so far? Okay. This, this um, Luther, I give you Martin Luther in the large catechism. Um, I want you to see this. This is really uh, important stuff. Um, I don't know if you have this experience, but I know it is an experience that can, can often happen. Um, and you see it, especially in your relationships with other people, but it, it's important to know that it's how it works in your relationship with God. Just look with me. So uh, the part that says page 419 on the top, that's the front side, fifth petition, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So this is Luther in the large catechism talking about the Lord's Prayer. And by the time he gets to the fifth petition, he's covered a whole lot of ground already, but he's going to refer us back to the introduction to the Lord's Prayer, how God is our Father. Okay, just listen for a second here. This part now applies to our poor, miserable life. Although we have and believe God's word, do and submit to his will, and are supported by his gifts and blessings, our life is still not sinless. We still stumble daily and transgress because we live in the world among people. They do us much harm and give us reasons for impatience, anger, revenge, and such. Besides, we have the devil at our back. He attacks us from every side and fights, as we have heard, against all the previous petitions. So it is not possible to stand firm at all times in such a constant conflict. There is here again great need for us to call upon God and to pray, Dear Father, forgive us our trespasses. It is not as though he did not forgive sin without and even before our prayer. He has given us the gospel, in which is pure forgiveness, before we prayed or ever thought about it. But the purpose of this prayer is that we may recognize and receive such forgiveness. The flesh in which we daily live is of such a nature that it neither trusts nor believes God. It is ever active in evil lusts and devices, so that we sin daily in word and deed by what we do and fail to do. By this, the conscience is thrown into unrest, so that it is afraid of God's wrath and displeasure. Think, I mean, this is your relationship with your parents, right? And when you're a kid, you're afraid of their wrath and displeasure. So it loses the comfort and confidence derived from the gospel. Therefore, it is always necessary that we run here and receive consolation to comfort the conscience again. But this should serve God's purpose of breaking our pride and keeping us humble. God has reserved this right for himself, 
If anyone wants to boast of his godliness and despise others, that person is to think about himself and place this prayer before his eyes. He will find that he is no better than others and that in God's presence all must tuck their tails and be glad they can gain forgiveness. Let no one think that as long as he lives here, he can reach such a position that he will not need such forgiveness. In short, if God does not forgive without stopping, we are lost. It is therefore the intent of this petition that God would not regard our sins and hold up to, hold up to us what we daily deserve. But we pray that he would deal graciously with us and forgive, as he has promised, and so grant us a joyful and confident conscience to stand before him in prayer. For where the heart is not in a right relationship with God or cannot take such confidence, it will not dare to pray any more. Such a confident and joyful heart can spring from nothing else than the certain knowledge of the forgiveness of sin. So this is the life of a Christian. This is the life of David, is learning, learning, because you, you have to learn it from beginning to end because you are by nature fleshly and your flesh opposes God and distrusts God from the beginning. You're learning um, as God humbles you and forgives you you're learning to trust that he forgives you, to trust that you have a right relationship with him on a crown of Christ so that you can ask him for all good things, so that you can pray with boldness and confidence. This is the, the explanation in the small catechism to the introduction. With these words, God tender, invites us to believe, tenderly invites us to believe that he is our dear father and that we are his dear children, so that with all boldness and confidence we may ask him as, true children, as dear children ask their dear father. Um, that's the goal. And that's what you're learning all your life long. It's not something that you start with. It's, it is uh, by process of sanctification. So it's very appropriate for us to say that David starts here at nothing. And then in the course of his life, this is what God is doing to him. He's increasing his faith. He's giving him a good conscience. And that good conscience rests first and foremost, and this is true for all of you as well, first and foremost on God's forgiveness, right? So God forgives your sins so that you are, by his word and by Christ's sacrifice, right with him. You have nothing to fear. You can ask him for every good thing. And this, is, um, this comes through in um, Psalm 32. David says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is the key. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So that's David talking about his relationship with God, which starts in the place of God's forgiveness. And he's, perceptive, he's experienced what it's like to withhold confession, right? To, to not, not to acknowledge his sins, how God's hand is heavy upon him, right? Because it is God's word itself that convicts him, that tells him that he's not been righteous and good. So there's a piece of conscience, good, uh, having a good conscience, which comes just from uh, having been dead and being alive again, right? From having been an enemy of God to now being God's child. There is also a piece of conscience that comes then from doing God's will, from doing what God gives you to do, okay? So Saul has a bad conscience, not only because when he's confronted with his sins, he does not confess and does not receive forgiveness, but he also has a bad conscience because he is continually failing to do his duty, right? So this is one of the gifts that comes with a good conscience. Um, with a good conscience, you are now free to do God's will without fear of failing, without fear of 
only doing it partially or not doing it with your whole heart. You're free to do God's will. This is where the basic stuff of the Ten Commandments is so valuable to us because it is a gift to you to give you a good conscience. When you do the things that God has given you to do, he has given you a good conscience. Because you can say, as David does, and it's always surprising when he says it, I have been righteous. I have kept your law. I have loved your law, right? And that's another, another mode of a good conscience that God wants to give to you. And it's a work that he does in you by his Holy Spirit. It's what he does to David. So David demonstrates himself to be the kind of king that Saul never was, right? So it's not just that David is humble and repentant, but then David lives a new life, a life that he couldn't have lived on his own, a life of doing God's will, right, of loving his neighbor. And what's, what's amazing about the story of David is that uh, you saw it with David and Abigail, right, in the last chapter, that even we're near the end of this, we're near the end of this ark, getting to, the, getting to the top of the ark. And even there, right there, he's about ready to do something horrible, right? But what is Abigail's argument? What does she say? Why is the reason why he sh- what's the reason he shouldn't go and destroy Nabal and all his household? Do you remember? For the Lord's sake. Take a look. 1 Samuel chapter 25. First Samuel 25, Abigail's come and she's giving him, giving him this entreaty. And verse 26, start there. First Samuel 25, verse 26. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, he's saved you from a bad conscience. By Abigail, God is saving David from a bad conscience. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And then, let's see here. David replies, verse 32. David understands exactly what's happened. Verse 32. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. She saves him from a bad conscience. And here's the thing about a bad conscience. You don't, you don't get a bad conscience, you don't commit a grievous sin, and then decide to humble yourself. Right? So if David sins, he doesn't get to decide when God is going to humble him or whether God will do it at all. And so there's this real blessing, this marvelous blessing in having God uh, prevent you from blood guilt, keep you from blood guilt, from keeping you from spoiling your conscience. This is David, um, and again, it's remarkable that this happens, even this happens so late in the story, right? Because it's a, it's a process, and it's two steps forward and one step back, and it's forming his conscience, and it is, uh, it's for the sake not just of his own salvation, but so that he can be a good ruler, right? You can't be a good ruler if you've got a bad conscience, Okay. Now, um, I want to think a little bit then about Saul. Now, let's get to the text for today, okay? Um, turn with me to chapter 28. Here's why, here's why I'm bringing all of this before you. Because, remember, if you've got a bad conscience, you can't ask your dad for things. Um, if you have a bad conscience, you can't pray to God confidently, right? Um, Saul has a bad conscience, and yet he prays to God. Listen to this, okay? Chapter 28, 
Uh, the beginning, the first part of chapter 28, verses 1 and 2 is date. Here, I'll just read it. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. That's quite the promise. So David has made good friends here with the Philistines, which is, of course, a risky thing for him to do because he's going to be the Israelite king, right? To make good friends with Israel's enemies is a politically risky move to make, okay? But now here, listen to what happens to Saul. Verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Good job, Saul. Way to go. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Okay? Pause there for a second. Saul is afraid. What does he, who does he fear? The enemy. Who does he not fear? God. Right. He doesn't fear God. Um, and so his inquiring of God is faithless. It's, in, it's with a bad conscience. This is why I read to you this morning from Isaiah chapter 58. This is um, God's judgment against Israel um, later before they're, before they're sent into exile. Isaiah, where's Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 58, he says to them, um, You seek me daily and you delight to know my ways as if you were a nation that did righteousness. And had not forsaken the judgment of God. You come, to my, you come to my temple and you make sacrifices as if you actually love me. And then you do all of these terrible things, right? You oppress the widows and the fatherless. You don't execute judgment in the land. Um, and, and the people are wonder. They say, well, we're fasting. Why aren't you listening to us, right? It's because they've got a bad conscience. But this is different. This is different, of course, from having a bad conscience and being afraid of your dad, right? This is having a bad conscience and not caring, right? Thinking, my dad, he owes me anyways, Right? So imagine how that story goes. You crash your dad's car. The car is mangled out on the street, and you waltz in to the kitchen, and your dad's looking out the window, wondering what you're going to say to him, and you say, hey, can I have 20 bucks to go to the movies tomorrow? That is, he's not going to answer you. <laughs> or if he answers you, it's not going to be favorable, right? And that's the story. That's the story of Saul, right? So it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's in a sense, a degree worse. It's a hardening of his heart, right? Because there is some hope if you've got a bad conscience and you're afraid of your dad, right? There's no hope if you've got a bad conscience and you are not afraid of your dad. You tracking with me so far? That's right. And that's, so the way that the Bible talks about conscience, it's having a seared conscience. It's like having a hard heart. Those, these things are connected. In fact, conscience and heart are intimately related. Luther uses the words interchangeably. In fact, hard-heartedness, that's what Pharaoh is, right? So the, when, when he um, is confronted by God's word again and again and again, his conscience becomes more and more seared, to the point where he basically is unrecognizable, right? It's not there anymore. Um, and this is, this, is, this is the key difference between David and Saul. So now, here's how you see it play out, right? We might, you might think to yourself, well, this is terrible that God is not answering Saul. He, he says to his people, call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you, right? Um, but here's how we know what's really going on in Saul's heart. Go ahead, Holly. Okay, take, take a look at just what, what happens next, okay? Verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. 
And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Okay? So just like that, God doesn't answer you, what's your recourse? Let me go find a witch. Yeah. Tells you, tells you what you're thinking about God, right? That he's, you know, he's, as, you know, he's just like the, the, a better, slightly better option than a witch, right? Um, it, reveals, it reveals Saul's heart. Um, that he's coming to God with a bad conscience and he's fearless. He's not afraid of God, but he's afraid of a lot of other things, right? Go ahead, Holly. Uh, he is treating, so God, I feel like God's not answering him because he's not asking for things in the name. Because he really wants to defeat the Philistines for his own glory instead of for the glory of God. That's right. And so, you know, he's not confident in the as Yes, not a cosmic thing. Yes, that's right. And Saul's treating him that way. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And that disrespect has been mounting over time, right? It's been accumulating in him. Yeah, Leah. It's interesting that Saul is looking for something in God. He's switch or whatever. He's having to go out and look for it. But um, Abigail coming to David is a perfect example of David didn't even ask for that, but because of his right yeah there's a sense in which um, the these two paths diverge and then God does things to cause them to diverge even more right so God you know could do all kinds of things to intervene for Saul. But in some sense, by having Saul commit this grievous sin, he's just making clear, right? Saul is making clear the judgment that is owed to him. Meanwhile, David, um, God sends Abigail to him because, because he's found favor in God's eyes, right? Which is something that is mysterious and beyond explanation. Like, why would God choose David? Why would God choose Abraham? Why would he choose you, right? Don't know, but he did it, and so he shows you his favor, and he spares you, right? He does, he does these things to, again, to carry you on this path. Um, and that's a remarkable thing because, again, it points to the fact that it's all, this all happens by grace, right? You don't humble yourself. You don't give yourself a good conscience. God gives it to you. And when you have it, that is cause for great rejoicing. I mean, there is really... Um, very very uh, wise theologians have said that there is no hell worse than a bad conscience, right? And that a good conscience, a conscience at peace is heaven. That's what heaven is, right? And think about it. That's what, wiping away every tear from your eyes, being sinless, being righteous, that's a good conscience. It means you, you are at peace with God. Aaron. I'm thinking, though, about how we, we don't know that ahead of time. Right. We're not like, oh, I know that God was destined to me. God did not choose me to be righteous. That's right. We still have the opportunity to be like, oh, I, I still have to decide, like, okay, I'm I know what you're saying, and this is this is, this gets this is a very tricky territory because we have to the words we use have to, we have to use them carefully. Um, it's this is the notion of predestination, really, is what we're we're talking about here, which is not something that we can never talk about in real time. Like you don't know about God in his divine foreknowledge and his foreordination from the foundations of the world, except for the things that he does to you in time right now. So how do you know that God has chosen you? Because he's preaching to you. 
Because he's teaching you. Because he's giving you baptism in his body and his blood. That's how you know. Not because you heard the councils, the secret councils from the beginning of the world, um, which then entitle you to do whatever you want. But if you separate yourself from God's means, right, then you're, you're, rejecting, his, you're rejecting his choice, right? Many are called, you're rejecting his calling. Yeah. And I guess the thing that would really affect us is that so then our decisions have real consequences when we decide to touch that's right. Continue to touch people, then it does continue to harden our conscience and have that effect. It's not like, yeah. well, if God, you know, I'm going to see it, if God really wants me, he'll soften He'll soften me, right. He'll change me, he'll soften my heart. So you keep doing yeah. everything in the heart Let's just see how much God really loves me. I'm going to go try this out, right? Yeah, see if he calls me to repentance. That, that's exactly right. Um, and there is an important thing to say here about one of the things that God does when he calls people, when he gives them his spirit, is he actually does give you a new will, a new heart that you can exercise. It's a real, it's, he's, you're not automatons, right? So he, he calls you to exercise your will. And this is why um, he gives you the commandments, so that you can choose the way of life and not the way of death, right? That comes, of course, that, that always comes post having been dead and now being alive, right? And we, that's always our starting place, is you were dead and now you're alive. And part of being alive is that he gives you a will with which to choose the good, right? Yeah, Krista. And I just was thinking, you know, in, in uh, life's experience also, you are in, Saul, in Saul's um, situation, he was so afraid. Yes. He was terribly, terribly afraid and perhaps of pain or, or conquering or that he just needed immediate help. Yeah, right. He, and that's, exact, that's a great way to put it. Um, one, of the, one of the problems with um, a bad conscience is that it seeks immediate relief from its pain, right? Or defers the pain that's coming to it, right? That, the, the pain that's required from confessing your sins, right? Um, and Saul, you're right. He's not got an eye to the future. He's got an eye to what's in front of him right now. Um, and his, his fear, this comes up in the text. This becomes really clear in the text. His fear is just amplified. Let's just read a little bit more here about his, about his trip to see the, the witch. Okay, so he's afraid, right? And Saul, so Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. He's the king. He should be acting like a king. Instead, he's doing something secretively because he's afraid. He's afraid, in fact, of his own righteous command that the mediums and the necromancers should be put out of the land, right? He's afraid of his own judgment. This is a bad conscience, right? Your own, your, you've put it into law, <laughs> what your conscience is telling you, and now you have to hide from your own laws, okay? And he and two men with, with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me a spy of spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So this is just like, it's about the most grievous thing you can do because he's bringing this woman with, with him into perdition, right? And he's bringing God's name. This is the second commandment, right? Um, we should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceive by his name. It's all right there, right? He's doing all of it, all of it at once. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. She's afraid too now. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. And that, so that, you know, the, the statement, do not be afraid, when you really ought to fear, that's, that, 
it sears your conscience as well, right? Peace when there is no peace. No, you ought to be afraid. Not afraid of Samuel, not afraid of Saul's judgment, afraid of the person who gave Saul those laws, right? Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed his face with his face to the ground and paid homage. And Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress. Okay? He's in this anguish. He doesn't know where it's coming from, really. But he names it here. He, th- he thinks it's because the Philistines are warring against him. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what to do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now, the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. I don't know. This happens... Like when the, when the angels come to visit Abraham? Yeah, right. Just really fast. <laughs> I, got, I got nowhere else to be. That's fine. I'll just, I'll just wait for you to kill that fat calf. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away and went away that night. This is a remarkable story um, because it shows, you, it shows you Saul's mounting fear. But even notice... At the very end, who's talking to him? Samuel's talking to him, but what is, what kind, who, whose words is Samuel giving to him? The Lord's words, right? Remember what I said to you. And what, what, did those word, what were those words for? What were they supposed to do to Samuel or to Saul? They were a warning. Yeah, they were to call him to repentance, right? This is a recapitulation of everything that came before. Samuel's saying, this is what you've been hearing all along. Here you're going to hear it again now. And Saul's afraid, but... He doesn't, with that fear, confess his sins, right? He despairs. It's lovely to keep reading and I'm trying to figure out why Samuel says this, but he says, you know, um, the Lord will give Israel the hands of the Philistines. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Yeah. He means in the grave. <laughs> just, just, just be in the grave? Yeah. Yeah, in Sheol. Is there, is there hope? <laughs> um, there's, there's, hope, there's hope to the day he dies, right? And um, the way that the story is told, that time shrinks and shrinks and shrinks because his, what's his, his last request is that his servant do him in, right? That his armor bearer do him in, which is uh, this last act of despair. Who else despairs in this way? Judas, right? Um, it's terrible. Um, 
But there's something really kind of neutral about Sheol, as it's often articulated, especially in, especially in the Old Testament. It's the grave. It's the place where um, people can no longer praise God and where they're, where they're waiting for something to happen where they, and where the faithful are resting. Samuel's a little bit upset that his nap was disturbed. Yeah. Um, and, and, and really, I mean, it's important to know that they're waiting for the final judgment, right? There's going to come a day when this is going to be sorted out. Yeah. Jan. Well, yeah, you get to the last chapter of Saul even compounds the thing by asking his armor bearer to run him through because he doesn't want the Philistines to kill him. That's right. Yeah, up to the very end, he's, he's thinking about his, his, own, his own self. That's right. Um, so, you know, I, this, the, the video, the Bible Project, is really helpful in that it does... Um, the notion of, of Saul and, San, uh, and David as examples is really valuable. The point at, that uh, somebody made earlier, maybe it was you or, or Aaron, Holly, um, about Christ being the point where, we, where we're appointed to is so important because you cannot begin to deal with your dark side apart from Christ, right? Christ gives you first and foremost, and in the beginning, in the first place, a good conscience by your baptism into his death and resurrection, right? So that's always your starting place. Um, if, you ever step, if you step away from that and say, I'm going to begin to forge a good conscience all on my own, right? It's not going to work. Um, and, and, I mean, this is, this is what the people of Israel found themselves doing that Isaiah is, is talking about, right? You, you're fasting for your own sake. Why, should, why aren't you fasting to give bread to the hungry and to, to welcome the homeless into your homes and to feed the poor, right? Um, you're doing this, you're, you're, you think that fasting gives you a good conscience because I've commanded it, yes, but you're doing it for all the wrong reasons because you don't understand what I've done to you, how I brought you out of Egypt and I made you my people. Um, and that is the great hope for us um, because we have God's word telling us this continually, calling us to repentance. Um, David's hope is his whole life long that God calls him to repentance, that God never stops calling him to repentance, right? And, and that he uh, humbles him continually, even to the very end. I mean, this is the story at the beginning of 1 Kings. David is like this weak old man, and Solomon is um, next in, he's, he's supposedly supposed to be on the throne next, but David's other son is taking things over and, and has made himself king. And Bathsheba and Nathan come into David, and they say, wake up. You're, you're relinquishing your responsibilities. Don't do this now at the end of your life. Don't leave this throne on, you know, uh, you know, don't leave this throne to somebody not of the promise, right? Solomon is the one of the promise. Um, and David heeds their call to repentance, right? Um, that is, you know, we can talk about virtue and about character flaws all the time, and they're very interesting things, and they, they have a, a real important impact in terms of um, uh, choosing, Right? The exercise of our wills, that we choose virtue and not vice, that we choose the good and not evil. That's really important for um, exercising our will to, uh, to gain a good conscience. But the real difference between David and Saul is not that David is more virtuous, but that he repents. Um, and that you have to keep that in mind. That, and that's, that's the great joy for you. So that this thing, I've said this before, um, repentance is simultaneously the worst thing that's ever happened to you and the very best thing. It's the worst thing because it means you royally messed up, right? Beyond your own salvaging. It's terrible. It's terrible to have to say that, right? Terrible to acknowledge your sins. But it is 
comes with this promise of it, that it's the very best thing for you. And that, again, peace of conscience is heaven. So enjoy it, okay? Do you have any questions uh, about anything else? One, just, uh, I got to tell you this one other thing, okay? Um, here, we're, we, guess we see this example. Oh, um, just so you know the story, okay? So David's with the Philistines, and they're going to go up to battle against Israel, and he's, got, he's made friends with Achish, right? You're going to be my bodyguard for life. And, but the other Philistines say, who are these Hebrews walking in our army? What, what, you know, what's the deal? And, and Achish makes this blunder. He says, well, this is David. Don't you know about David? He's such a great guy. And they say, David, <laughs> if David wanted to make himself right with Saul, what will he do in battle? He'll turn against us. Send him away. And Achish, is, Achish says over and over again, I found nothing wrong with you, David. I've got no problem with you, but you have to go because nobody's going to fight if you're with us in battle. So David goes. Interestingly, I mean, I think this is another instance of David's conscience being spared because imagine how difficult that would be. He's, got, he's you know, sworn this this allegiance to Achish, and now he's in battle and he's facing Saul and he's going to have to decide, what's he going to do? He even speaks ambiguously about it. As, uh, as Achish is talking to David, David says, this is chapter 29, verse 8, David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in the eyes, what have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Who is his lord the king? Is it Achish or is it Saul? It's not clear. Right? And that ambiguity is going to present a problem for David, um, but he spared it. Right? He spared that crisis. Okay? Um, David then shows, again, his kingly character as the Amalekites come up and sack a town, Ziklag, and they steal David's wives, and he goes and he defeats the Amalekites, which is what Saul should have done long ago. But here's an important thing. David wants to know whether he should do it or not. And so he inquires of the Lord. Chapter 30, verse 7. David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech. Ahimelech, remember, was the guy who got wiped out with all the priests at Nob, right? So one of the reasons why Saul can't inquire of the Lord is because he's killed all the priests, right? Why is God, why is God not talking to them? Because all of God's mouthpieces are dead, okay? But here, David has rescued Abiathar, to whom he had sworn that he would, t- he would take care of him. The son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod, which is like a portable version of the ark, so Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David's communication lines with God, wide open, right? And he can ask God freely. And then he obeys. He does what God tells him to do, right? Um, last chapter then, uh, Saul dies in this really inglorious fashion. And it's a fitting, a fitting tragic end to the story, Right? I mean, this, he plummets just to, to the grave. Um, that gets picked up again in 2 Samuel when we start the story of David's reign as king. So you have to come back in the fall for that. Okay? Anything else? Sounds good? Yeah. This is the last day. Yes. You're very welcome. Thank you. This is a, this is a great time. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.